Well, can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open in uh, Isaiah chapter 36 on page 721, using the church Bibles. There's some uh, headings in your, in your welcome sheet there. There'll be some headings on the screen there uh, too, if you find that helpful. A few years ago, there was some research uh, carried out at the University of Glasgow, and they looked into uh, how people responded to different voices. In particular, they attempted to find out if there were certain types of voice that people trusted. They, uh, they tested uh, lots of different people uh, by, by getting them just to listen to, to different people say the word hello. So it's all they heard. And after hearing each, each voice, each hello, um, people were asked to, to vote on how trustworthy they perceived the voice to be. And the remarkable thing was, out of the hundreds of people they did this research on, uh, people's responses were very, very similar. Uh, what did they find, Paul? Put simply, um, people trust a hello that has personality. Uh, people felt the most trustworthy voice was, was a voice that had varied, varied tones. According to the researchers, if you do want people to, to trust you, then, then put a bit of life into your words. If I, if I start next week with a slightly over-the-top hello, um, it's purely coincidental. Well, the first 35 chapters of the book of Isaiah... Uh, it's full of, of one particular voice. We hear the voice of the prophet Isaiah. It's, it's called Isaiah for a reason. Oracle after oracle, prophecy after prophecy. The, the people of his generation and readers since have heard the voice of Isaiah. If you've been here over the last uh, few months, You've heard that voice. But in hearing Isaiah's voice, as we read this book, we also, we also hear another voice. Because Isaiah, as, we, as we've seen from the beginning of the book, was, was the Lord's prophet. He was to speak God's word. In fact, if you, if you read through the first 35 chapters, you'll find that, find the little phrases time and time again. Phrases like, uh, Isaiah spoke the word of the Lord. Or, or the Lord spoke to Isaiah. So, so as we hear the voice of Isaiah, behind it we're hearing the voice of God. And we were thinking last week, apologies if you weren't here last week, but we were thinking last week how, how the message of the first uh, 35 chapters is, is in some ways very, it's very similar. There's a pattern to it. It, the, the message at one level is quite, is quite straightforward. There's a message of a coming judgment followed by a, res, uh, a message of a, of a coming rescue. That is the pattern of the first half of the book. Judgment and then salvation. Got God's justice being done. God's mercy being shown. We were thinking last week how there are, how there are woes. Woe, woe, woe. But then after the, the woe, you get the, you get the wow, you get the, the wow, God's, God's going to show grace to these people. That, that's the, the rhythm of the first 35 chapters. That the woe, that the coming of God's judgment has been spoken of clearly. See, the people of Judah, where Isaiah lived, that, they'd turned their backs on the Lord. That they'd rejected him. 
that they had rejected his word. And God had been so, so patient with them, so gracious over such a long period of time. But as Isaiah begins to speak, the voice is this, the voice is that, that God is now going to judge. And in chapter 7, we, we, we read how, how the Lord is going to judge. The, 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 the means of judgment that, that the Lord is going to use to judge the people of Judah is going to be the nation of Assyria. We read that in chapter 7, verse 18. How, how Assyria, this great powerful nation, is going to march down. God's going to whistle them. I said last week, if, if I could whistle, I would do it. He's, he's going to whistle them, call them down. And they're going to come down and march through the northern kingdom and on into the, the southern kingdom of Judah. They're going to be God's instrument of judgment. But alongside that message of judgment that we hear time and time and time again, there's also a message of, of hope, of salvation, that, that God will, will protect his people, those who trust in him. He'll, he'll protect and he'll rescue and he'll save. He'll restore them to the land. A faithful few, a faithful remnant will be with God, protected and safe. So many promises. If you read those first 35 chapters, promise after promise. The voice of Isaiah, the, ver- the voice of God has been heard. I don't know if Isaiah spoke with, with varied tones I don't know what his delivery was like. I don't know if his voice sounded trustworthy. But what I do know is this, that as we reach chapter 36, the people of Jerusalem have got a very simple choice to make. Will they trust the voice of Isaiah? Will they trust his message? Will they trust the promises that they have heard God make through him? Or will they trust another voice? Chapters 35 and 36, we hear the voice of the leaders of Assyria, in particular the voice of the king. So whose voice will they trust? That is the the big question that the people faced. And I'd suggest it's it's a question that's that's relevant to us today. Whose voice will we will we trust? Will we trust in the voice of God, in all his promises spoken to us, recorded for us in the Bible? Or will we listen? Will we we trust the many voices, many powerful voices that say, "Put put your trust elsewhere? So let's look together at this uh, section. Think about this question of trust and how it plays out in three different scenes. Three different scenes that we read about in chapters 36 and 37. So firstly, scene number one, the aqueduct. And here we see that the enemy arrives and says, don't trust in the Lord. Verse one, got your Bibles there. Verse one of uh, chapter 36 tells us that during the reign of Hezekiah, king of Judah, King Sennacherib attacked and captured all the fortified cities of Judah. That that should not come as a surprise. 
that the voice of Isaiah has been heard. He's been saying it time and time again in all the, the chapters previous that the Lord had promised that, that the people of Judah would be overwhelmed by Assyria. But there's still one city un- uncaptured, the great capital city, city of Jerusalem. It's like Manchester's been captured along with Cardiff and Birmingham and Edinburgh and Belfast, even Portsmouth. But, but London is still free. What one city left standing? But for how long? The, the Assyrian army, they are literally at the door of the city. And more than that, we read about the field commander in verse 3. He's at the aqueduct of the upper pool. And he's there to meet top representatives from the city of Jerusalem, King Hezekiah's representatives. And that location is, is significant. You might think there's quite a lot of detail about where this meeting put place. Why do, why do we need to know that? Well, it's significant because the aqueduct by the upper pool has been mentioned before in the book of Isaiah. Back in chapter 7, we're told that at that exact same spot, the exact same spot, King Ahaz, the, the previous king of Judah, he stood there. And he stood there in a, in a meeting with Isaiah. And on that occasion, in chapter 7, King Ahaz, he hears what, what Isaiah has to say. He hears the promises. He hears the word of God. But he chooses not to trust it. And now, years on, we're at exactly the same spot. And the question is, is it going to be kind of, is it going to be Groundhog Day? Will, will King Hezekiah do exactly the same as, as King Ahaz did and refuse to put his trust in the Lord? That is certainly what the representatives of Assyria ask him to do. When the enemy arrives, that, that message is quite simple. Whatever you do, don't trust the Lord. Let's, uh, let's have a look at what the, uh, what the field commander says. He rules out, first of all, in verse 6, uh, trusting in Egypt for protection. It, in brackets, that's good advice. God had already told the people, don't, don't look to Egypt. But then he goes on to, to make his case why trusting in the Lord would be equally foolish. Look at verse uh, 7, chapter 36. But if you say we are depending on the Lord, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before the altar? King Hezekiah, he had, he had actually removed lots of the, the altars around the land. That was a, a right thing to do. He, he wanted the, the Lord to be worshipped properly in, in, in Jerusalem. But the field commander, he, he clearly thinks, but, in, but by removing the, the altars, it kind of means less, less power, less, less influence for, for the Lord God. In verse 10, he makes the case that it was the Lord who'd actually called Assyria down to, to attack. Furthermore, verse 10, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Again, he's, he's right in what he says. That is true. 
But it's not new, new news for, for, the, for the people of Jerusalem, for the king. Isaiah told the people, told the king time and time again that that was the case, that the Lord was going to use Assyria as his means of judgment. Clearly, the, the representatives of Judah feel the conversation so far isn't going too well. And it's, it's almost uh, comical what happens next. The three representatives are aware that this conversation is, is happening in Hebrew, if you look down at verse uh, 11. And the people of Jerusalem, who, who obviously speak Hebrew as well, they are basically on the walls of the city listening. You can imagine, this is going to affect them very much. They're all they're crammed on the walls. They're listening in to the conversation. And, and the representatives are, are, are hearing the kind of verbal shots that the, uh, the Assyrians are making. And so they say to the, to the field commander, can we just carry on this conversation in Aramaic? Do you think that would be okay if we, if we just kind of talk a different language, show the people on the walls they're not hearing all this bad news? Well, the field commander not only says no, but he, he begins to speak out. He, we, we he, he calls out. He's not just addressing the representative now. He's speaking directly to the people. And he tells the people how trusting in the Lord will be a disaster. Our book uh, is, is my daughter's school dinners each week. It's an online thing. It's part of my Sunday night routine. Uh, it, can, it can be hard work. It sounds like an easy task, doesn't it? Just booking some, some school dinners, but it's not always easy. It's not easy for this, uh, these reasons. Uh, problem number one is sometimes uh, Izzy doesn't like any of the choices. That, that's, that's obviously a, a problem. It's problem number two, some days she's spoiled for choice. I say to you, you can have this, or you can have this, or you can have this, and she likes all of the options. Fish fingers and chips, jacket potato cheese and beans. It's not, it's not an easy decision to make, is it? Well, the people on the wall of Jerusalem, they are given a choice of food, and in this case, <laughs> the decision is very easy. Verse, uh, verse 16, this is what they say to the people. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says, make peace with me, come out to me, and each of you will eat fruit from the vine and the fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land uh, uh, like your own, a land of corn and new wine, of, of bread and of vineyards. To be fair, he doesn't make much of the, the downside of being exiled, does he? <laughs> but, but basically he says, I'm going to take you off to that, but... That there will be figs to eat, and there'll be, there'll be wine to drink, and there'll be bread and corn. And he's already told them the alternative. Verse 12. But the commander replied, was it only to your master and my master sent me to say these things, and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will eat their own excrement? and drink their own urine. Figs, water, fruit, fresh bread, or, or urine and excrement. Even if you don't like figs, it's not much of a decision, is it? The case has, has been made. Don't, 
Don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't, don't trust in the Lord. That's what he says, they say in verse 15. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. When he says the Lord will surely deliver us, the city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Phil Commander makes his final point in verses 18 to 20. He speaks of the other nations that have trusted in, in their gods and have, have since been long destroyed. He says, don't, don't, don't add the Lord to, to the list of, of gods that have been defeated after people have trusted in them. Verse 20, who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hands? When the enemy arrives, the message is quite simple. Don't trust in the Lord. Can I say, I think it's, it's always been that way. The enemies of God, the enemies of God's people are always tempting God's people to to take their trust away from the Lord. Not, not to hold on to his promises, often with lives, with threats, with half-truths, with mockery. Maybe you've heard some of those lies. Maybe you're someone that wants to trust in the Lord, but yet you hear lots of voices, voices out there. Maybe sometimes voices in here. The enemy always says, don't trust in the Lord. Second scene takes place in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. And here we see that the king prays and he puts his trust in the Lord. King Hezekiah has, has heard all that's been said. And he responds in, in verse 1 of chapter 37 by heading to the temple. That, that was the place of prayer. He also responds by ripping his clothes and putting on sackcloth. The, the, the clothes ripping and the, the sackcloth. That, that ways to express sorrow and, and distress and repentance. I think it's, his sorrow and distress, it's not, it's not just for the presenting situation, if you like. It's not just for the nation. That there is sorrow that the Lord is being mocked, that he's being ridiculed, that he's being compared to, to other gods who aren't gods at all. He's deeply troubled by it. Verse, uh, verse 4, um, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that you might rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. He, uh, he says similar thing in, in verse 17 and later in the chapter as well. He, he, he seems to be most troubled by this. He, he hates the fact that, that God is being mocked. God is being ridiculed. Maybe those of us who are Christians today, we, we feel that sometimes. Feel that the Lord Jesus is is mocked, is is laughed at, and we should be upset by that. Yesterday, I I went to uh, watch Pompey play, 
Uh, I went with Freddie. Now, you know that when you get 15,000 people all together, there's going to be things said and there's, uh, there's going to be chants made if you're at a football match that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you think, I can't, I don't agree with that. I'm not comfortable with it. But there's one thing yesterday that, that I found particularly upsetting wasn't anything really to do with the match at all. It was, there was a couple of uh, people behind us, and uh, there was a son and, and dad, I guess it was. And uh, partway through the match, they, they were just having this little conversation, and basically they were, they were kind of mocking Jesus. And it really, it really troubled me. <laughs> it really upset me. I, I wanted to turn around and say, Don't, that, that's, that's the king, that's... That's my saviour you're speaking about. All the other things I heard, there's nothing, there was nothing, there's nothing in his life, is it, as, as upset. And I think we should be upset as God's people when we hear people mock Jesus and, and laugh at him and make him nothing and ridicule him. And King Hezekiah, he's like that. So he goes to the temple and he does two things. He... He sends for the word of Isaiah again, verse 2. He sends representatives, go, go and get Isaiah. What has Isaiah got to say? And then later in verse 15, he prays. And in those two things, he's demonstrating that, that he's continuing to trust in the Lord. So, so first, he calls for Isaiah. I mentioned earlier King Ahaz, who, who, who didn't trust in the Lord. King Ahaz, he never sent for Isaiah. When they had their meeting, Isaiah went uninvited to the king. But King Hezekiah is not like that. He, he wants to hear from Isaiah. Go, go and get Isaiah. See what Isaiah has got to say. He wants to hear the voice of God. And Isaiah brings him God's words in uh, verses 6 and, and 7. Tell your master, this is what the Lord says, Do not be afraid of the things you have heard. Those words which the underlings of the king of Syria blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country. And there I will have him cut down with a sword. He, he listens to those words. In a sense, though, that when he, asks, when he sends for Isaiah, he probably knows what Isaiah is going to say. He's already been persuaded by it. That, that's why we read that, I, that the king is trying to persuade the people to trust in the Lord because time and time again, he's heard the words of, king, of, of Isaiah. He, he isn't, in a sense, wanting something new. He just wants to hear God's words again. He actively seeks it. Sometimes I speak to people who find it hard to trust in Jesus, trust in all the promises that we have in God's word. Maybe, uh, maybe non-Christians who have got questions, things they don't understand. Maybe some who, who are Christians who have got doubts or who feel distant from, from God in their relationship. Maybe Christians who are going through difficult times and are struggling in our relationship with God, finding it hard to, to trust in him. And my first response to, to anyone in that situation would be this. 
expose yourself to more of God's word. If you're finding it hard to trust in the word of God, don't run away from it. Run towards it. If if you want to trust in God more, then listen to him more. Hezekiah has listened time and time again to Isaiah. He has heard the voice of God through him. But in this moment of crisis, his first, his first wish is, I want to hear it again. I want to hear Isaiah's words again. And having listened and heard Isaiah's message of comfort, he then prays. He's given a report from the, uh, brought to him with the words of Sennacherib in, in verses 9 to 13. We haven't got time to look at that this morning, but basically it's, it's kind of more bad news. It's more, don't trust in the Lord, make, uh, make peace with me. And this is what the king does with the report. He places it before the Lord in the temple, and he prays. In verses 15 to 20, we, we read how he prays. He prays based on the things that he's heard from Isaiah. It's all based on God's word. He prays, for example, to the worships of the Lord as, as the one who reigns over all the kingdoms of the earth. That's what we've been reading, haven't we? Isaiah's message time and time again, there's one God, he reigns over every kingdom. He prays in the light of what he's heard from Isaiah the prophet. And he prays seeking not just rescue, but he prays that the Lord will be honored, that the mockery would stop. Verse 20, now Lord, our God, deliver us from this hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Praying based on God's word, praying, seeking God's glory. It's a good place to start when we struggle, when we come to pray. It doesn't take long for the prayer to be answered. Deliverance does indeed come. That's our final scene, the Assyrian camp. And there we see that the Lord delivers and trust in the Lord is shown to be right. Sometimes in life, uh, trust is, is very active. It involves doing something, involves carrying on. I, I believe, I'm trusting that I am going the right way as I'm driving along. Despite what others might be saying in the car, I'm just going to carry on. That, that's a kind of a, an active trust. But sometimes trust involves being passive. It involves just waiting. It involves acknowledging that there's nothing that we can do and trusting in someone else completely. I think the Bible describe, describes both active and passive trust him. The, the trust that King Hezekiah demonstrates is, is more like the, the passive variety. He just has to, to wait. Trusting in the Lord means, in one sense, doing nothing, acknowledging that there's nothing we can do. Waiting. So he waits. With a, with a great army camped outside the city. 
As he waits, he gets another message from Isaiah. That's there in verses 21 to 35. Again, we haven't got time to, to look at the message. But Isaiah, again, just reassures the king that his, his trust isn't, isn't misplaced. He assures him that the Sennacherib will soon be defeated. In fact, the king of Assyria, who's, who's been mocking the Lord, soon he'll be the one who, who's mocked and who's humiliated. He reminds him in verse 30, if you're still troubled by that reference to food, that, that actually in a little time, in the land of Judah, uh, in the land of Judah, think, things are going to grow again. <laughs> that they'll soon be growing vineyards. God will restore and protect his people. And then as Isaiah and the people of God trust in God, they, they know that there's nothing that they can do it's then that the Lord himself goes out and defeats the Assyrians. Everyone's asleep. Syrians are sleeping confidently, no doubt, in their pride. People of Judah are sleeping knowing that there's nothing they can do. All they can do is trust. And then during the night, the Lord brings judgment and salvation just as is promised. Look at verse 36. <laughs> We're not given much detail. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. Well... <laughs> The angel of the Lord, he's, he's more than just a, an angel. We, we read of the angel of the Lord elsewhere in the Old Testament. You can ask me a little later about that. It's hard to, to say exactly, but in some way that the angel of the Lord, he, he, he represents the Lord in a very real way. I think we can say with confidence it is the Lord himself who brings judgment on the people of Assyria. It is the Lord himself who brings salvation to those who are trusted in him. We've seen throughout this book that the judgment and the salvation that Isaiah speaks of, they, they have fulfillment in this generation. He's speaking about his, uh, historical, in a historical context. He's speaking about things that are about to happen, things that we've just read about. But we've seen also that, that sometimes Isaiah speaks of a, a greater judgment, doesn't he? A, a greater salvation. The, the, the end of time judgment. The, the, the big salvation of, of God's people. And we see here that, that when it comes to the, to the final judgment that, that chapter 34, for example, has spoken about, I think we get a glimpse that it is the Lord himself who will be the judge. And when it comes to salvation and, and rescue, that, that work that, that chapter 35 speaks of, that work of rescue is the work of God alone. His people don't contribute. His people are simply called 
to trust. As Christians, we know that the Lord Jesus has brought rescue, has brought protection from God's judgment. He's done that through his death on the cross. And all we contribute, all we need to do is trust in him. As we finish today, we finish this first section of the book. We've read so many promises, promises of judgment, promises of salvation, promises concerning Assyria and Judah and other nations. And here in these two chapters today, they've, they've in one sense, they've been fulfilled. They've been seen to be true. The voice of God's prophet, the voice of the Lord has been proved to be trustworthy. So can I say as we finish, as we listen to to all the promises of God, promises that are made to us here in, in, in this book, promises that are made to us throughout the rest of Scripture, can I say to us, we can trust them. We can hold on to them even when it's hard, even when there's lots of voices saying don't do that, even when the circumstances of life seem to be saying don't trust, don't trust, don't trust. We can. We can. We can hold on to them, sometimes actively, sometimes more passively, and just wait. Because the story of Isaiah, the story of the Bible, the story of Jesus tells us that God is always faithful and we can put our trust in him. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray, please, that you would help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in you even when life is hard. Help us to trust in you even when there are other voices around us telling us, encouraging us to put our trust elsewhere. We thank you that you have shown in history that you are faithful and true that you are a promise-keeping God. Thank you that we see that most especially in the Lord Jesus. So please, Father God, will you help us? Help us to continue to, to seek your word, just like King Hezekiah did, to listen to it and to trust it. Sometimes that might mean doing things. Sometimes it might mean waiting. But help us to trust. Help us to do that as individuals. Help us to do that as a church. And we thank you that as we trust in you, your deliverance will come. Thank you for the reminder here that 
that ultimately our salvation, it's not down to, to us. We, we contribute nothing. It is all down to you. We thank you and we praise you for that. In the name of Jesus. Amen.